listening to a message from Park Springs Bible Church, located in Arlington, Texas, where we discover life in the power of God's grace and share His life-changing grace with others. Join us as we hear from the Word. Well, good morning. Welcome to uh, our third installment on our series on Changed. As we've been wanting to take a peek, if you will, or a window into individuals' encounters with Christ. And for, for numerous reasons, not the least of which, what we deeply desire is that there are truths, theological and emotional and spiritual truths, that we can appropriate as we think about how Jesus interacts with what brings a person to Jesus and how those challenges have have shaped how their understanding of what Jesus will do on their behalf, as well as just the, the impact of those, those places where Jesus moves towards the, the suffering of those who are calling out to him or struggling with just even understanding his role in their lives. And, and just the, the cascading effect, if you will, the downstream effect of their lives post-encounter with Christ. And I'll, I'll lay my cards on the table. The reason why this series is so critical for me, as well as each of these specific stories, is because I have to believe that people can change. <laughs> I need it for myself, as well as the reality that there are things that we encounter. And often when we have interactions with individuals, those interactions give us a perspective, a definition, or a label of who this person might be. But we're only seeing a slice or a glimmer of what that person is dealing with at that moment. And so often as we develop perspectives and understandings of the individuals around us, they're incomplete at best. You might interact with a person on their worst day and make a decision on who that person is based on that one interaction. And yet the Gospels give us this indication that through the life-transforming, rescuing power of Jesus, his, his intrusion into people's lives, that the version we believe about ourselves or one another is incomplete, that Jesus can and is doing something. And so what that means for me is that there are places where the Lord is changing, and I know I need to be changed. There are places that the Lord is working that I can't see in other people's lives, and so that means that I don't have a, an ability, theologically or biblically, to just discard them. That the definition I have of the individuals around me are inaccurate at best. They're accurate in the moment where I might have been hurt or wounded by something that they have done or the sin around me. But we live in a society and a culture that is just seeking to generate a definition for ourselves. That somehow we've given ourselves agency to define who we are. The stories that we're going to encounter or the story that we'll encounter this morning, I really do think intrudes into that space of this thought that we can define ourselves and begins to really just blow it up in so many different ways. That the thought that every single one of us and every person that we encounter can change. But they can't change in and of themselves, nor can others change them. It's a life-transforming encounter with Jesus Christ that is the instrument and the motivation for which change occurs. And so this morning, as we're going to jump into Matthew chapter 15, I want to look at an encounter of an individual that comes to Jesus with a whole host of motives, a whole host of definitions, areas in which she has 
labeled herself, society has labeled her and others around them, and even the religious elite have decided who this woman is. She has been defined and is defining herself. With all of the confusion and the masks and the uncertainty about her life, she still comes. She still comes to Jesus. And I think what Jesus does this morning is literally blow up those labels, those definitions that have been imposed upon her and that she has imposed upon herself in such a way that what I think it does for us is to have to look at one of two things. First, how we think we are defined. What is it that we would legitimately put upon ourselves as the understanding of who we are? Often it's the suffering that we've experienced or the challenges that we faced. Sometimes it's the insecurities and the lack of confidence and uncertainty about who we really are and so we're defined by the other people around us or we allow them to define us. Or we have hopes that somehow in some way I'll just be able to kind of make it through life and if I manage my story in such a way then I can deal with a perceived label of who I am but if people really know what I've been through and walk through those things then they'll interact with me based on the tragedies, challenges, and struggles that I faced. This is a significant moment. The second piece is what it looks like to understand what it means to be changed by Jesus. And I don't mean just in status. Positionally, anyone who's placed their faith in Jesus Christ has been moved biblically from death to life. There's been a a positional transition from being an enemy of God to now being considered a child. And those are significant, but what I'm really addressing this morning in Matthew 15, what I think the Bible's addressing in Matthew 15, is what it looks like to understand how that positional reality of being a child of God is not just formative, but chronically and consistently changing us. That there's a downstream implication to the effect of Jesus' work and continual work in our life. And what that really means on a practical level, the day-to-day reality of what that looks like as we walk through the work of Christ in our life. You know, for many of you know, Aaron and I spent 11 years in Vermont. 11 years is a long time in Vermont, but Vermont is known for many things, right? Fresh maple syrup, some of the best in the world. It's also known for legendary winters. (laughs) What we would say, they feel like they last eight months, but they were long, and they were dark. Now, as you know, weather anywhere is legitimately unpredictable, but there were some guarantees that you could anticipate as the weather began to turn and the winters grew colder. You knew that at least for some period of time, you would be walking through and living in sub-zero temperatures. I was on the fire department first response, and the last fire department call I went on on the interstate, the wind chill was negative 50. Five zero, not fifteen fifty. Like it's just bone chilling cold. It's it's brutal. You have this sense. You also have the predictability that there's going to be ice storms, and you'll look up at the power lines, and there'll be icicles hanging down from the power lines, and the power lines just kind of sinking in. And you know, it could be a day, it could be two, but we're going to lose power. Then you had these 
epic snowstorms. We had one snowstorm on Valentine's Day that was three feet, three feet of snow in the context of 24 hours. There are elements that you could predict that you knew that you were going to encounter as Vermont, as winter descended on Vermont, these things would be anticipated. Here's the other thing that you knew, being on the fire department first response, you knew as people drove in Vermont in the winter that they would crash. <laughs> there were plenty of black ices and people on the interstate and things, people careening off into the ditch because they were driving too fast, above recommended uh, conditions. They were driving and thinking that, oh, because I have a four-wheel drive truck, that means that four wheels spin, not just two. And they would just go off into the trees on a regular basis. And so you would get these calls in the middle of the night as individuals were driving too fast and go off the interstate. And most of the time, you just knew that it was just going to be protecting other vehicles and making sure that everyone was safe. But every now and again, there was an event that would take place that we would call a fatality. An unpredicted individual or family were driving down the road and they would hit a patch of ice or something would happen where their car would careen out of control. And at that moment, for some in that vehicle, their life was taken. And then you do the best you can to try and help the family and deal with all of the other implications of the incident itself. But then what would happen would be two weeks later, you would see a small little memorial set up on the interstate. You've seen them around here, across some flowers, a place that memorialized the incident where this incident was life-defining, changed their entire course of what they thought life would be like. And every time they or anyone else would drive down the interstate, you would see it pocketed with crosses. Now, you might not know the individual that passed away, but you would know that a family grieved. There was some loss that set in on their life that they could not have anticipated nor predicted. And it defined their moment every time when they were with friends and family and they would tell their story, this would be a part of it. It would life alter everything as they thought about their future and the way forward. I'd like to suggest to you this morning that that's true for many of us. Maybe we haven't navigated that type of grief or set up memorials on the interstate, but I would suggest that we have set up memorials in our heart. There are places and events that have happened to you or will happen to you or are happening to you that serve to be life-defining. The question of this text this morning is where is Christ and what is he doing in those moments? I mean, it's one of those categorical challenges that we don't want to really have to ask the question because so frequently we feel like either Jesus was absent or he only comes in on the backside and helps us move through it, but we don't know or have categories of where Jesus was in that space. When you think in your own life of those life-defining moments, whether your sin or sin done to you or circumstances beyond your control, I want you to hang on to that thought and I want you to ask the question, where is or was Jesus in that life-altering, life-defining moment? As we move into Matthew 15, I want to make sure that we get the details abundantly clear 
Because remember what Jesus is addressing here, what, what the real thing that's on the table this morning is, is that definition, those labels, those places that we see ourselves and others see us that become so life-defining that we want to know where Jesus is in the midst of it. We're going to be introduced to a woman, and she's defined, not by name, but by culture. <laughs> she's not defined by a, a name of who she is, but she's also defined about the events that she's walking through. The text tells us that she's Syrophoenician. Maybe that's lost on many of us, which I totally understand. We don't have a lot of experience with ancient Near Eastern culture, but she's a, she's a Canaanite. In the Old Testament, they are sworn enemies of Israel. If we could give her a label this morning, it would be as though she would have a neon sign over the, cro over the, the top of her chest or over the top of her home, and it would say, outsider, outsider, outsider. She would know that in every context of which she is walking through, that if she's interacting with anybody from the nation of Israel, she does not belong. She has no place, no status, and no significance. She is an outsider that many would walk to the other side of the street to not have to engage or encounter. But then even in her own culture, she's an outsider because of her suffering. She's defined not as just a Syrophoenician woman, a Canaanite, but she has a daughter, and her daughter is possessed by a demon. Now, I doubt they had meal trains in the Near East, but I don't think you make a casserole for a kid who's possessed by a demon. It's not as though there's just some level of illness or suffering that's taking place. This is categorically something that would not just put you on the outside, but Anybody, even in your culture, you would want to take as far swath as possible away from this person's house because you don't want the demon to come anywhere near you. Like, it freaks you out. So what you have is not just that she's an outsider, but she, for all intents and purposes, is walking alone. This is the individual that Jesus will encounter, but it comes on the heels of something happened that just happened just before. So Jesus is uh, having another argument with religious people. You want to know what the argument's about this time? There was plenty of them. This one was about washing your hands, right? Like a parent telling their kid, just wash your hands before you eat. That's what the Pharisees are telling Jesus. Like your people aren't even taking care of the cleanliness and laws that are important. They're not even washing their hands before they eat. And there's this huge eruption and debate and conversation about what makes a person unclean. See, that's the other aspect of what Jesus is dealing with this morning is not just definition, but defilement. What makes us, what makes individuals unclean? And I think, honestly, it serves as the basis for the work that Jesus does. Because often when we think about change in and of ourselves and change of those around us, how do we normally perceive that? Well, we would say in spiritualized, well, I don't see fruit, right? We look for externals to wonder if God is really changing anyone or changing ourselves. Jesus moves us into a place where the change that exists, the focus of his attention is what's inside. And so he has this huge debate with individuals and uh, religious leaders that are saying, you know, you need to do these things to be clean and right with God. And they get angry and they have a debate. And so Jesus uses 
um, Isaiah 29, 13 to kind of just clear things up for us as we, we move towards this Canaanite Syrophoenician woman. And I want you to look, if you have your Bibles, Matthew 15, and it's gonna be in verse seven. Here's what he calls them. He says, you hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, the people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain, they did worship me, teaching as doctrines um, the commandments of men. The analysis of Jesus for the religious elite are that they know the right words to say, but their heart is not really in it. They, they know the externals of what, what should be done, but the fact that it actually lends itself to an intimate understanding of a relationship with the God of the universe, it's vacant. It's, a, it's an empty religion based on externals. And Jesus addresses that, and Peter begins to ask the question, well, tell me what you mean by that. And here's how Jesus explains the significance of what he's saying as we move to Matthew 15, verse 16. This is what Jesus says. Are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Kids, I'm telling you, you still have to wash your hands if your mom says to you. So don't think that that's the application of this text. But what I am saying is that what Jesus is getting at in the context of, of setting up this event with this Syrophoenician woman is what really decides what a person truly is. And Jesus is saying, well, it comes from what's inside. It's not externals. It's not where you were born. It's not the suffering that's happened to you. It's not the sin that you've caused. It's not the sin that has been done to you. What really is on the table this morning is what's in our hearts. What motivates what we do and how we do what we do? What ultimately brings us to Jesus? Here's the story of the Canaanite woman. Mark calls her a Syrophoenician woman. But here's the situation. Jesus kind of fed up, it seems, with the debate with the religious elite. He begins to take a vacation. <laughs> Jesus went away from there and withdrew, the Bible tells us, to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. So this woman is coming because she seeks Jesus to offer healing and help, but not for herself, for her daughter. Well, not fully for herself. Certainly, she's vested in her daughter's healing, but she's coming because she realizes that her daughter has no ability to come for herself. She's severely oppressed. We don't know how long, but what's defining of this moment is that the Bible gives us a descriptor that she's known that she's Syrophoenician or she's a Canaanite. She's an enemy of the people of Israel, and in the context of those things, her suffering has been her definition. She is a mom who has a sick kid and a sick kid that no one wants to be around. So she comes. And look at verse 23, and I want to just sit here for a second. 
but he did not answer her a word. Does that sound common? Has that been part of your experience at all? You look at this text and we begin to review it. How often has our cries and prayers felt like they've met the silence of God? It's a hard space to be, but the reality of what we're getting here is this notion that Matthew is inspired to share with us is that there's an individual who's coming out of absolute and total desperation. There are no options. You don't go to a physician when your daughter's demon-possessed. There are no solutions. She is outside the nation of Israel. We don't know what sort of individuals or religious people could help with demon possession, but what we do know is that she's still demon-possessed. And as the text would describe it, she's severely oppressed. This young daughter is having her life consumed by something supernatural and external outside of her, and her mom has no options. She's heard of a religious teacher, son of David. She's, she's heard the definition of, of this being somebody that might be able to help. And so she runs to him in desperation, even in the midst of knowing that she is an enemy of the nation and labeled in every single way possible. She's alone, she's lost, she's fearful, and yet she comes. Desperation, in many ways, is a significant material of faith. (laughs) That somehow, in some way, this woman is understanding that there are really no other options. The text doesn't tell us if she's tried other options, but she comes to Jesus pleading, crying, if you will, that Jesus would work, and she's met with silence. How does it feel? Not great, (laughs) but here's what happens. A unique part of what transpired, we don't know if it was just an awkward silence for a couple of minutes, or if it just felt like an eternity, probably some of both. But what happens when you feel like you're coming to Jesus and you're met with silence? I would suggest to you this morning that you do and I do what the disciples did and probably what this woman did. We fill the silence with our own understanding and expectations of who Jesus is. We fill it with the backlog of hurt and pain. We anticipate Jesus's responses. And so in the silence of us coming to Jesus and him not speaking what ends up happening, we speak for Jesus words that he hasn't spoken. It happens all the time. You go to a loved one and a friend for advice and they're not sure how to deal with your pain and your suffering. And so what do they do? They, they offer in a good way token platitudes. It's okay, God will work it out. We fill the silence with expectations of what Jesus will say, and that's exactly what the disciples did. Look what happens in verse 23. He did not answer a word, and his disciples came and begged him, saying, so not even paying attention to her request, not even seeing her for an individual, but here's their response. Jesus, you've had a a tough road. You've been fighting and debating these Pharisees. Things have been crazy Here's the answer. Jesus, you must be flummoxed and confused about what to do. Let me help you, Jesus, about what to do. Send her away, for she is crying out after us. (laughs) They include themselves in her suffering. This is making me uncomfortable. I don't like that she's crying out after us when she's actually seeking Jesus. 
but they put themselves in that category thinking, you know what? She is just a nuisance. And so the reason Jesus is silent is because he just doesn't want to address her issues. And so just, just send her away because somehow her desperation and pain and suffering create an atmosphere that are just uncomfortable. We don't like it and don't want anything to do with it. And here's what Jesus says in one of the most challenging portions of, of this text for sure, if not other texts of scripture. He answered in verse 24, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall off their master's table. And Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. What we're dealing with this morning, and I think the, the main question that faces us in this text, is where is or was Christ and that intersection? The intersection between definition and hope between excuses of what limits our understanding of who God is and hope that God can do something significant. I think often what we get is a, a, a picture, specifically with the disciples, that there's a level of self-righteousness that kind of bubbles to the surface. They had just been taught as they wrestled with the Pharisees, that it's not what outside a person defines or defiles them. It's what's in their heart, right? That was the teaching that Jesus just had for not only Peter and the disciples, but even the Pharisees. It's, it's what's inside a man that makes the most difference. And yet the first opportunity the disciples are given to actually walk that out, how do they address or think about this desperate woman's suffering? <laughs> Send her away, because she keeps calling out after us. They see her based on externals and give no time to even figure out what's going on inside her heart. They've made a label and a decision. And so what does Jesus do? I think Jesus capitalizes on the reality of knowing where the disciples are at and begins to address the larger issue that so often we define people and even define ourselves based on what's been done to us or what we've done. And we've never really gotten to the point of who and how are we defined? We're not defined by the what around us. We're defined by the who within us. We're not defined by the what around us. We're defined by the who within us. And so Jesus becomes that source of transformation and, and, and change in this individual's heart. And so what I think ends up happening is what I want to do in kind of a negative way, I guess, not to put a downer on this whole time together, but I think what Jesus is addressing is that self-righteousness has no time for others' desperation. When we think we're on the in crowd or that we're not as bad off as others, or that somehow in some way we've figured it out, then the desperation of the people around us and the challenges that we see, or even that we live in a culture that is seeking to define themselves in such a way that there's just an utter abject confusion about all of these things, we would say, well, at least that's not me. <laughs> I don't know how to help the 
sexual confusion and sexual dysphoria that we deal with in our culture today and all of the things that are we're being inundated with, with all of the amount of the fact that you can define yourself and be your best self. And we don't even know what an individual is these days between a man and a woman. And there's all these conversations. And we say, how, how, how do we even move into that conversation? Well, we move into the conversation from the standpoint that every single individual is looking for an answer. We want to know what it means to find value and satisfaction and hope and happiness. And they're taking it in thousands of different ways. And yet you and I have been given the very answer of how we are defined. It's not the what's around us, it's the who within us, that Jesus is the source of that definition, that that true hope, true happiness, true peace, true satisfaction is not found by any of the externals in this world. It's found by Christ alone. So self-righteousness has no time for the desperation of others. But it also has no desire to admit our own. That was a fun one. When we think clearly about the elements of this text, the desperation and the challenges of this Canaanite woman, the Syrophoenician, the outsider of outsiders, and not only does she not belong in her own culture because her daughter is demon-possessed, but she has no business being around Jesus and the nation of Israel because they are sworn enemies. And yet the disciples would say, send her away. She's not one of us. I would suggest that there are a few sins going on here, a few struggles, if you will, not the least of which the disciples are unaware of their own desperation, (laughs) their own need that they don't have it figured out, their own confusion as to who Jesus is and who they are in relationship to Jesus. Because if they understood their place at the table of Christ, then what they would understand is that they brought nothing to that table save the intentional pursuit of Christ on their behalf. They were outsiders in their own culture. They were fishermen. They were not the elite. They were tax collectors. They were people that didn't belong. They were on the fringes of their own society. If anybody can relate with what's going on, it's them. And yet somehow, in some way, because they've been called by Jesus, they believe they have some privileged status. They believe that somehow they're more significant than a woman who's a sworn enemy of Israel that is now in desperation because her daughter's possessed by a demon. That's what happens. As we grow in our walks with Christ, what ends up happening often is that we can look at those around us and not realize that we are in desperate need of the life-transforming grace of Christ as they are, even though we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ. God doesn't give us a sense of privileged status where we're better than someone else. It's a communication that you and I are children of God, and God is on a mission to seek and save the lost. And you are the lost, and so am I. And so what do we do? We, we move towards, like Jesus does, move towards this suffering, deals with this desperation. And one of the most intriguing interchanges of this situation was how he responded to her. See, I think, I think faith is the intersection of excuses and hope. Faith is that place where we find ourselves at this intersection where we have all of these excuses, all of these definitions, all of these things in our mind about what God should do on our behalf or what he hasn't done and the hope that he can do more than we can see at this moment. That's what happens with this Syrophoenician Canaanite woman who's an enemy of the nation of Israel. Verse 24, he says it. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. 
he again is parroting, communicating the reality of what the disciples already believe, that there's some sense of overt significance that they don't have as much needs or their needs aren't as significant as hers. So Jesus moves and he says those things, but she knelt before him in this utter sense of desperation and humility and says, Lord, help me. He's no longer son of David. There's no title. She's just realizing that the definition of her suffering and her concern for her daughter is, is she just needs help. And then he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to dogs. Again, he's developing this cultural version of how the nation saw outsiders. This sense of greater value in one nation over and above another, more significance, more status, more prestige. It's okay to help those who are like you, but those who have a sin and a suffering that are just something that you are averted to or something that's so strong, a a definition and a label that's beyond what you can expect, beyond what you want to deal with. Jesus addresses that, and she says this, yes, Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs from the table, the master's table. And he says, oh, woman, great is your faith. See, I think if faith truly is the intersection of excuses and hope, what we end up seeing in the context of this text is her, her faith, it's not as though there's a, a quantity or a quality, but it's about who her faith is in. See, I think so often when we think about having faith or do we have enough faith for God to be moved by our situation, I don't think that's the point. The point in this text is not that she has faith, it's who she has faith in. That Jesus himself is the source of her hope. And so what she realizes is that he is the one that can instrument change on her behalf, that he can actually do something to affect her situation. And so she is so aware of her need that, that, and, and that, that Jesus has the sufficiency and the power that it's even just a crumb of mercy from his table that's enough for her, that the, the most nutrient-rich of foods, even if it falls off the master's table, is fundamentally enough for for all that she could need. What she's saying, what she comes to the conclusion of and how Jesus responds is that you are absolutely right. That it's not as though Jesus is just parsing out little bits. You just have a little sprinkle here, sprinkle there. That Jesus has the full amount of the ability to do whatever needs to be done. And even if it just feels like a crumb from his table, it has more richness of grace than any other thing in the world. That this is enough for her. It changes the definition of her life. Remember the neon sign she carried? Outsider, outsider, outsider. Imagine for just a moment, and this is a bit of speculation, but she's leaving that encounter with Jesus and on her way back home. What's she thinking? (laughs) Is she thinking, I'm still an outsider? He lied to me. My daughter's not healed. I don't have hope? Or is she walking with this reality that now the definition of her life has fundamentally and completely been changed? She is no longer a mom with a demon-possessed daughter. She is no longer an outsider, but someone who's encountered the life-transforming power of Jesus Christ. What will she share with her neighbors? They'll all know. Every single one of them will know that her daughter is no longer demon-possessed. 
What story will she tell? I don't know, it just happened one day. No, she would say, I, I went in utter desperation to Jesus and had this interchange where I realized that his mercy was so rich that he encountered me, he saw me for who I am outside of all of the labels and out of all of the decisions and he, he worked in such a way that, that, that my daughter was healed. He didn't have to go to her. Like he just spoke the word and she was healed immediately. Like from a distance, the power of Christ was so sufficient that all I did was plead to him for mercy. And what I even, it would even would seem like a crumb. He, he transformed my life. And so now my identity, my definition, who I am is no longer a mom of a demon possessed co- uh, child, but I'm a, I'm a mother and somebody who's encountered the life rescuing power of Jesus Christ. And it's changed everything. And that's your story too, is it not? Is it not that, that if faith is the intersection of excuses and hope, that it's not as though we have to figure out what we need to do and what we need to say in order to come to Jesus. We don't have to have the right words or the right perspective, but we have to push through all of the self-definitions and definitions around us and just come. Just come to Jesus asking for his mercy for, for not just ourselves, but those around us. And I wonder how much our life and our prayer life is focused on the needs and the suffering of those who God has allowed us to encounter in our life. The challenges and the suffering, even those who have wounded us, even, even the hurts and pains that we carry because of other people's bad decisions. Even the loved ones who don't know Jesus or the workers that we work with or the students that we we student with, (laughs) the students that we learn with, that's better to say it, whatever it might be, the sense is that the mercy that you've received from Jesus Christ is sufficient for everything before you and it's the very thing that the entire world needs. You need mercy, so do I. So I have one question for you. What keeps you from running to Jesus for mercy? At the beginning of this message, we talked a bit about definitions. But I would say that often there's a sense in which we as religious people, spiritual people, have some definitions. And those definitions are that we should have this figured out. That somehow in some way we've learned enough and been around the road enough that we've done enough things that we should not feel the type of desperation this woman feels. And that self-disqualification, that excuse, I think, is blown up in this text. You will meet and I will meet things and have met things in the context of my life that I cannot figure out. I don't have the resources or the ability to know fully what God is doing. But what I do know and what I would tell you this morning is the very thing that this Canaanite Syrophoenician enemy of the people of Israel person knew is that mercy is the answer to your deepest needs. And here's what I want to tell you. Jesus dispenses that mercy without holding back. If it's just a crumb, it's more than you need. That there is not a place where Jesus is not sufficient for what's before you. So what keeps you from running to Jesus? Perspective, pretense, I'm a pastor of a church. I don't need this. (laughs) Boy, that's a lie. (laughs) I'm an elder in the church. I don't need this. I get to tell people about it, but I don't need it for myself. That's a lie. Been a Christian for 20 years. I don't need that. That's a lie. Daily, you need the mercy of Jesus. Because why? 
when Jesus works, definitions change. When Jesus works, definitions change. Would you pray with me?